Hi everyone, just a quick message before we start today's episode. The generosity of our members and friends is life-changing for young investigators, lung patients, and patient families. Donations made to the ATS will help to support our mission to fund emerging investigators in cutting-edge research, sustain education and public health initiatives, and reduce health disparities to advance worldwide respiratory health. If you would like to make a contribution to the ATS to help support our mission, please visit thoracic.org go slash donate. That's thoracic.org go slash donate. This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Welcome, everyone, to the latest episode of Scholarly, the podcast brought to you by the ATS Scholar Journal and the ATS section on medical education. I'm your podcaster, Deepak Pradhan, a pulmonary critical care attending at New York University and associate program director there. And today, it's my pleasure to interview Dr. Alberto Jaffe, Dr. Robert Jackson, and Dr. Drew Brotherston on their recent ATS Scholar article entitled Teaching Ultrasound at the Point of Care in Times of Social Distancing. Dr. Jaffe is a Distinguished Staff Physician at St. Michael's Hospital and Associate Professor at the University of Toronto, Department of Medicine and Interdepartmental Division of Critical Care Medicine, where he leads their critical care ultrasound curriculum. He's won multiple teaching awards and published extensively in the area of -of point-of-care ultrasound and has a focus on optimal teaching strategies and competency of achievement in bedside ultrasound. Dr. Jackson and Dr. Brotherson are both co-first authors on this paper. Dr. Jackson is a PGY-3 in internal medicine at the University of Toronto, and Dr. Brotherson graduated internal medicine residency from the University of Calgary and is now a general internal medicine fellow at the University of Toronto. Both were instrumental in the development of the curriculum, and I'm looking forward to hearing about the trainee perspective of their endeavor. Welcome, all of you. So I really enjoyed this article. It really combines a lot of my personal passions, which include medical education, particularly trainee education and point of care ultrasound. And it's a fantastic example for our listeners of how to take an existing curriculum and adapt it to the constraints emanating from the pandemic, adapting it to a blended learning design of in-person synchronous activities with asynchronous virtual or remote elements. And I think our listeners can utilize this paper as a concrete how-to model, not just for POCUS, but for adapting their own curriculums as well. So Alberto, I'm going to start with you. In order to understand the implemented changes, I think we first need to go back and understand the pre-COVID curriculum. Can you summarize your basic, and I use basic in the acronym sense, curriculum pre-COVID? Yeah, so I must say that um, the, the curriculum took many years in the making and is still in the making. It really is, uh, I actually started uh, the curriculum when I was a fellow. 10 years ago, I was part of my sort of scholarly project during fellowship and an interest that I had coming from Europe. Uh, I realized how the use of point of ultrasound was uh, different. And uh, thanks to my then supervisor of fellowship, that really pushed me in uh, trying to do something for the, my co-fellows, trainees, that's how we started. So we went to multiple different iterations and uh, the pre-COVID, uh, the 2019-2020 curriculum was just uh, a change uh, uh, that came uh, by trials of error, to be honest, uh, and success. How was it? So we, we started actually moving a little bit uh, already to a more hybrid model with some more uh, remote learning or um, unsupervised uh, type of learning because of necessity. Is um, There are a few things. The one is that the University of Toronto um, has five main academic centers. 
that they are spread out to the, across the city. So when uh, we started our curriculum, uh, we used to do in-person sessions. And what we realized that a lot of trainees, they could not join a session because they were post-call, because they were far, there was a lot of commute time. And uh, when the technology of uh, um, sort of webinars uh, was more available, we sort of jump on it. And uh, we started uh, at least using uh, for a session that they were more uh, theoretical or image interpretation session, uh, we started using the uh, this new technology. So it's, to be honest, is that, uh, and something that comes in our article is that the changes for the pandemic, they were not completely new. We were sort of accelerated the process already part in the making. And I'm not saying that we're gonna discuss later, I also highlighted some issues uh, and we will, I'm pretty sure we're gonna discuss this during the podcast. So in a nutshell, uh, uh, what happened before uh, on the curriculum is that uh, we moved to a more, uh, single events, so more longitudinal. So we're already running a longitudinal curriculum. And as you mentioned, the basics say for the acronym, but it's also because we have an advanced curriculum. We realized that uh, not everyone uh, has the time, commitment, interest in becoming fully competent in a comprehensive advanced echocardiography and you know, ultrasound. But at the same time, everyone that is practicing our discipline needs to have uh, basic skills in clear care ultrasound. And that's why a few years ago, we split the offering for our fellows. We had a basic course that is offered to everyone coming to Toronto for their fellowship and training. And uh, um, it is a longitudinal course. So it means that we start using over the summer and uh, across 10 months, we had uh, in the past more in-person events like uh, workshops, seminars, uh, teaching sessions during the academic half day. Uh, during the course of the year, focusing on basic cardiac ultrasound, lung ultrasound, uh, a little bit of abdominal, of course, fast, uh, and some other application, and then more recently, diaphragm, and of course, vascular. Um, the course was uh, heavily still in person. We were organizing uh, a series of uh, workshops, about initial boot camp or two-day boot camps where the trainees, they were coming, we were renting space, uh, uh, a lot of instructors, uh, ultrasound models uh, uh, scanning with us. It was a huge undertaking, but I do believe that there was a huge benefit of this initial induction, very strong uh, induction on healthy models. And then uh, we moved to the longitudinal part where roughly every two to three weeks, we were having uh, um, theoretical sessions mixed between knowledge and image interpretation. Uh, and of course, uh, it's a skill, so acquisition session. The trainers are still a problem. I think is that, that there is common uh, issue across uh, North America, not only is that the fact that uh, current faculty, they don't necessarily have the skills. And so uh, a lot of the work done by myself and few others that are helping uh, in the curriculum was really is that the scanning on the bedside. Uh, outside of the clinical duties. And that was extremely time consuming. Uh, and um, one of the solutions that came over the course of the years was to involve uh, the expert in acquisition imaging, that are the sonographers. So through connection with our cardiological links, radiological links, uh, sort of uh, over the course of the year, meeting people at the bedside, the sonographer coming in the ICU scanning and saying, oh, you're 
you're good at scanning, you're actually also interested in teaching me. That's how I met most of the people. We started uh, having uh, sonographers helping uh, with the teaching sessions. Um, we, uh, pre-pandemic, we were limited at two of these five sites, and we have a limited number of sonographers, mostly because of cost, to be honest. Um, and that was one of the main change that we also implemented uh, in the post, uh, in unfortunately, we are not post-COVID pandemic ever yet, we all know. The other thing that we were trying to do uh, was uh, the portfolio generation. So one thing that, that our trainees that were requested to do is outside the teaching session, outside this workshop, uh, the initial induction, and then a series of two workshops over the course of the year, focusing on different domains. So again, on healthy models to really pro practice on the skills was uh, to scan in the ICU. Scanning ICU by themselves when they were, uh, or with some of the instructors or some of the faculty members that are a little bit more ultrasound savvy, and uh, um, download the images, submit the images for portfolio review by uh, our faculty. In idea to, you are scanning with the sonographer, we're scanning with us, but you're also responsible of your own training uh, by scanning patients uh, that you are encounter your clinical practice and uh, try to make an effort or reporting the study and uh, commenting on the quality of the images they acquired. The last thing that uh, we used to do, and unfortunately that disappeared during the pandemic was uh, a serial assessment. Uh, over the course of the year, uh, with, um, we were submitting uh, and asking the trainees to complete uh, a series of uh, formative assessment and summative assessment. And then at the end of the year for the successful trainees, again, uh, the one that they truly embrace the technology, that they were submitting the studies, uh, that they managed to achieve that uh, level of uh, competency, uh, and that managed to uh, acquire uh, adequate number of studies. So we were offering, uh, uh, in collaboration with the um, Ultrasound Attention Society, sort of a, a summative final assessment, that they were sort of uh, uh, in training. So essentially, were, um, they were scanning uh, on uh, simulators, scanning on healthy models. They were uh, uh, asked to review and uh, interpret uh, a series of cases. And they were also supposed to present a few cases uh, that they encountered over the course of the year and discuss together the medical decision maker. There's an interesting article that I read many years ago. It is from uh, an emergency physician, I think in uh, Ohio, it's Banner, his name, that he developed this model, uh, this framework for ultrasound is the IA is the indication, the acquisition, interpretation of medical decision making. And really that was the main driver of our curriculum in terms of planning it. We wanted to try as much as possible to include all this uh, aspect of critical cultures and learning uh, in our curriculum. And the medical decision making is the difficult part, to be honest, uh, for us, because that happens in real patients and, and that happens at the bedside uh, during your ICU rotation uh, and not all the time uh, expert uh, sonographers or teachers are there with the products. And that's why we try to integrate this in some case discussion, but to be honest, not always uh, easy. Wow, it's, uh, you know, 
everything you said, it's such a robust uh, curriculum that you had in place, even pre-COVID, that obviously came around with a lot of iterative time and iterative changes and kind of labor of love. Um, and so you talked about kind of the boot camp process and then really the longitudinal curriculum, right? Because we know that just doing a boot camp, then there's degradation of skill sets. And so it has to continue to build over time. And the use of things like online in person didactic sessions, hands on sessions for image acquisition. And then also motivationally, you're you know having them independently scan, create portfolios. And then I love the last part, which is the assessment phase, is that you have to know whether or not they're actually achieving competency, um, because it's going to take different amounts of time, different amounts of scanning, you know, for different individuals. And uh, you know, we we have something very similar that uh, I've done over the course of the last seven years, and it's exactly along this type of this framework of the IAM model where you're really kind of developing and thinking about them along all of these areas of how are they going to, their part because they're part sonographer, having to get the images, part radiologist, where they have to interpret those images. And again, they're a clinician. They have to then manage and utilize that information that doesn't live in a bubble. And so it's a fantastic, I think, um, you know, education that they get that combines a lot of different things from psychomotor to, to knowledge base and so forth. And uh, one of the things we've done in terms of our assessments is we moved to also in-person in the hospital setting as well with patients so that uh, they can have some kind of real life pathology as well. This is a fantastic curriculum. And so what were the problems? What were the issues that you encountered when it came time COVID hits and now we're in the age of COVID? How did that skew or, or challenge your existing curriculum? Yeah, I think it's, as everyone in the world is that we face a situation where physical distancing policies kick in and of course for protecting ourselves and the patient uh, and at the point uh, um, imagine is that in our program is quite large we have a lot of fellows across the city and uh, there was serious concern about uh, imagine is creating an outbreak among critical care trainees uh, at five different academic centers. And it is something that, of course, we could not tolerate and accept. So uh, automatically, all the in-person gatherings, uh, especially because they were not just gathering from the same institution, it's not people that you see no matter what during the day, but there are trainees that they are rotating at other four academic centers coming together to one of training sites. It's something that we could not accept and tolerate. But that, of course, the in-person bootcamp, uh, the workshops, uh, the assessments uh, done uh, at, the end, at the end of the year on uh, large groups coming from different areas, it was not possible. So that got cancelled right away. Um, and the restriction uh, on movement between hospitals was a problem as well. As I mentioned, is that the sonographers, uh, because historically the, the, the main two drivers of the curriculum uh, uh, are at two of these five academic sites, uh, they were recruited at these two sites because we knew them, right? myself and Dr. Dufle. Um, and so we automatically limited um, what, what, what could we do is that uh, are we allowing uh, fellows coming from uh, other sites to potentially uh, access an hospital where they're not kind of rotating with the concern, especially at the beginning, is that the transmission outbreaks uh, for something that is not for clinical, right, that we can use. And so we, we, we had to find solutions also for this aspect. And then, of course, there was a clinical workload is that everyone got busier, um, much more clinical work. 
and uh, and so limited the availability of uh, supervisors except that myself uh, uh, is the main leader for the basic curriculum to face the leader for the advance uh, but we have a lot of people that they are helping us and of course the, their availability decreased and finally is access to patients right is that at the beginning we didn't really know uh, we didn't have PPEs at a certain point. There was some concern about uh, PPEs, and so we could not really have um, liberal access to patients as well uh, as we used to. And the beauty of the scanning session was really is that uh, we were approaching patients and families, uh, asking for permission and scanning them uh, uh, during uh, our either clinical days or as a part of this scanning session with sonographers. But that became very, very difficult. And that's what led to most of the changes, to be honest, I think. Yeah, that's that's a good kind of listing of what happened. And and this was something that happened to people everywhere, at every institution across the, the lands, you know? Uh, I remember our, our simulation center shut down as well, so we couldn't do things there. You mentioned that the inpatient setting, you couldn't have a conscience and, and be like, we're gonna bring, you know, trainees and other people, learners into these environments, into hot zones and, and you know, and then uh, PPE conservation. Yeah, there's, gosh, so much going on during that time. So, you know, with, with all that that was happening, then how did you respond to those issues and problems? How did you make changes? And what changes did you make to your POCUS curriculum? Yeah, so in a nutshell, really, is that we just accelerated the process. We, we relied uh, almost 100%. Actually, not 100%, but we rely significantly more on remote learning and self-regulated learning. Uh, and then uh, what we did is, thanks to the program that it was extremely supportive, I'm saying that the university was extremely supportive from a financial perspective, and we're going to discuss, I think, later about this, is that we managed to expand uh, the two sites that were offering uh, the hands-on session uh, to all the five academic sites. So sort of saying is that um, you are, for example, I work at St. Michael's Hospital, is that you are at St. Michael's Hospital, there are gonna be session for you at St. Michael's Hospital. You work at Sunnybrook Health Science Center, you don't have to leave. So in terms of uh, risk of uh, causing outbreak of exporting, sort of the risk is essentially the same as long as we, of course we are, careful in terms of PPE at the time. We, we sort of discussed together with our IPAC, infection pressure control, what to do, but uh, uh, you can still scan in your unit uh, because these are the same patient you see every day. You know the isolation practice in the, in the environment. And uh, to do that, we reach out uh, sonographers from uh, all the sites. And uh, thanks to our you know, strong support from the university, from our cardiological leagues, we managed to find uh, a sonographer each site. Yeah, it's uh, it really is. That was the key aspect. Uh, is the and for the remote uh, for the remote learning is uh, the the boot camp was a big deal to be honest. Uh, and uh, because I strongly believe that you need to set the foundation, and to set the foundation you need to have uh, um, time, uh, not in a pressure environment. I can be in the ICU where again. Imagine about uh, learning a parasternal view and spending 30 minutes on one single view. You cannot do on a patient. 
because sure that they may be sedated and but still I think is that you can really do this for um, ethical reason and also for a flow reason is that nurses have assessment the patient at test so there are a series of things that so the workshop was really something that the boot camps where we had dedicated time in uh, an environment that is not uh, the ICU, of course, we all the limits of uh, having healthy models, of course, but we can really focus on step-by-step -step approaches that uh, how to optimize the view in preparation for what is then the reality is in the ICU. And that was a big uh, challenge. The having not been able to have the entire cohort together and discussing uh, in depth uh, these basic principles. So what we did is that again, is that we had to find solution. And uh, two things we did that was actually three things. One is that we um, move as much as possible in terms of the initial webinars on how to get the views. The basic principle ultrasound, that was our lectures, of course. The challenge of uh, remote learning and the fact that people may be a little bit disengaged, but we, we, we managed to do this on uh, webinars. And then uh, uh, on the, uh, how to get the views and demonstrate how I put my hand, because that's at the end of what we were doing, right? Is the instructor was showing, the, and this is how I put my hand. We managed to create a series of videos that actually they're available and they are gonna be, the link is in the, is in the manuscript. There are short, I think is that four or five minutes long each, uh, videos uh, with a picture in picture when you can actually see the hand of the sonographer and the ultrasound screen at the same time uh, and the explanation the voiceover telling you what kind of movement you do and uh, the focus was uh, describing uh, the view but also describing how to optimize the view and what kind of pitfalls you may obtain um, the process actually started already something that uh, dr dufle myself started uh, uh, sometime before but again motivation uh, time uh, uh, didn't really brought us to complete this and then covid pandemic uh, rob especially and willingness to work hard on uh, creating all these videos and put them in together and publishing them online really made the difference and so we offer and we are still offering this uh, um, short training videos uh, that they had the goal of partially replacing the introduction, to be honest, how to get the views. And then we look online. We look at what is already available online and uh, because we didn't want to reinvent the wheel in terms of offering online and things, there is a lot available uh, in, the, in the net, in the internet. And um, we use, uh, we created uh, some sort of a, uh, online resources material. And we focus on few of them that we truly believe that they have a highly educational. And one of them is this uh, teachingmedicine.com modules. Uh, it's a colleague from uh, the University of uh, Calgary, that uh, Jason Wachter, that it really is that he did an incredible job over the course of the year to creating a, uh, a website where uh, you can uh, track your performance in terms of completion of the studies. Uh, there is uh, test modules so people that they started also talking about the assessment, the testing themselves. And uh, we suggested this as a part of the curriculum uh, for the trainings to do it. Um, 
And that's for the online uh, training. Uh, I mentioned already about the supervised scanning, the fact that we were lucky to have support and, uh, and find uh, more people at each site. At each site. And um, the thing that unfortunately we could not really do properly because, and that was lack of time to be honest with the assessment. The assessment and the portfolio review had a significant, uh, um, was a significant challenge. It was a failure, to be honest, in, in, in the changes uh, in the, the COVID-19. That was the part that, uh, because of personal time, to be honest, and requ require, uh, was not really possible to, to do effectively. And that's part of today and uh, this year work. We really want to put these two aspects back on track. Great. Yeah, it's, it's something that we're struggling with as well as the portfolios and portfolio design and then reviewing the portfolios for our, for our learners as well. So what I'm hearing is that you really tried to maximize the things that were kind of remote and virtual and asynchronous in nature, video series, webinars, online modules, so that you could then have potentially less time that you could then utilize, is say, in person for the scanning. And then also you used uh, kind of institution-based or, or individual hospitals as sites so that they that uh, individuals from that hospital could then do small groups and I take it you probably kept learner to teacher ratios uh, you know pretty pretty advantageous as well by doing that and I forgot to mention I love the fact that you're using such a multidisciplinary group you know having the sonographers as well doing it because they're going to be fantastic at teaching the image acquisition skills uh, particularly. Okay. And yeah, that, that part, to be honest, is one of the greatest success is uh, the availability and the collaboration, the relationship now with the sonographers. And in terms of uh, hidden curriculum, uh, that helped not just in learning, uh, but also in creating uh, uh, a trust um, within uh, the groups. I can tell you is that the fact that, uh, you know, there's the traditional aspect is that, oh, they are non-cardiologists, non-expert imagers, they're trying to, to do this. There are going to be a lot of incidental findings, mistakes, errors, uh, and risk for the patient. That is the one of the way of seeing the use of point-of-care ultrasound, right? the risk of point-of-care ultrasound. The fact that we have uh, sort of the expert in the field helping us in uh, acquiring images also show them that one we are not trying to do comprehensive echo exam. We are not trying to diagnose things that we are outside the scope of practice. Third is that uh, created that they know each other and uh, that increased the amount of uh, opportunities is that uh, there is a patient that they're scanning the unit, uh, the sonographer see an interesting finding, they call the fellows saying the unit, they, hey, I just did this, look at this. And uh, that created uh, honestly uh, an incredible uh, uh, milieu of um, sort of uh, sharing uh, learning opportunities. Something that we didn't mention is that uh, we also use uh, essentially a, a WhatsApp chat. We created a, a group uh, across all the trainees where the sonographer were included. And so we were sharing uh, interesting cases, of course, in an anonymous way, but the, the we were encountering during the day or references articles. And uh, some of the sonographer actually contributed to the comment, comment in the sessions, senior fellows, they completed the training, they were still in the chat, and that really created a sort of a virtual space of discussion uh, that uh, because of this social isolation, uh, the, the impossibility to meet and to be in the same room together, 
the fact that uh, the academic of day, everything became virtual, uh, let really, um, I think another value outside the, the learning opportunities and the initial goal of the chapter, for example, was really just to communicate uh, administrative task like uh, there is a session coming up this is the link or uh, uh, there is a one spot available because someone dropped off uh, and uh, anyone interested in joining the session today uh, it really created a lot of other opportunities that were unexpected wow that that sounds absolutely fantastic and uh, i'm sure people are listening thinking ah this is a really fantastic idea to add to existing you know focus curriculums uh, as well, it really enriches the the educational environment uh, that they're learning in. So I want to turn it now to uh, Rob and Drew, and just ask ask you guys as trainees, you know, going through this and working on this curriculum, you know, what did you think about it in terms of of working on the curriculum, the changes, the adaptation? What do participants say about moving from the pre-COVID to the age of COVID course now? And when we start with Rob, so I think. I come at this from a core internal medicine kind of residency background, not being a critical care fellow and been a, a novice um, POCUS user. So like the, the key thing for me um, in the program, the key thing that kind of stands out to me is the accessibility of it. So I wasn't actually involved in the, in the pre-COVID curriculum much as a learner, but in the post-COVID curriculum, the accessibility is really what has stood out. So like all of the things that Alberto has been talking about, the, the things that he's touched on so far, um, the webinars are easy to access. Um, you get to kind of join them from the, uh, the comfort of your own home. You don't have to kind of commute to a different site to see them in person. Um, if you miss them because you're post-call, they're, they're recorded. You can catch up on the content that you've missed. Um, and then of course, the pre-recorded content, the how to get the view series, um, the sessions themselves, uh, are, are booked in advance. They're all available online on, on an, uh, a website that Alberto has set up. Um, and the, obviously now post-COVID, there's multiple sessions at each site. All of those things just make it so much easier to kind of join in on this program. And I think the fact that Drew and I are involved as learners is kind of a testament to, to how a program has been distributed to a, a broader audience uh, post-COVID as opposed to pre-COVID. Very cool. Drew, your take? Yeah, I think uh, so the the lens that I bring to this, so during my core training, um, I've actually uh, completed uh, POCUS training at a couple of institutions. There's the local uh, elective uh, at the University of Calgary. Um, and uh, also one at uh, the University of British Columbia. And, uh, both of them uh, followed what I think are, are pretty typical models for uh, POCUS education and that they're one month long intensive daily scanning with supervision. Um, and so the, the first thing that stood out about this program was the longitudinal aspect of it. And I think maybe to sort of build off of uh, what Rob had said, I think it's the, 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 the two you know, huge things that stand out about this program and that I think have, at least in the setting of, uh, of, of distance learning, I think I've actually added to it is that it's able to bring in people, you know, from not just, you know, uh, distributed sites, but distributed programs uh, and also from, you know, different areas of the world, um, which, 
moving entirely to a webinar-based uh, didactic teaching model uh, has facilitated. And, uh, you know, in, in my own experience, I don't think I would have been able to effectively participate in this program as a trainee outside of critical care uh, were it not for the combination of uh, distributed learning uh, from the didactics and then this very sort of small, uh, low ratio learning at specific dedicated sites uh, that ended up coming about specifically as a, as a consequence of the pandemic. Uh, because my schedule is entirely asynchronous from, uh, from that of the critical care uh, training program, but I was able to very easily integrate myself into this training. Fantastic points, both of you, right? Uh, I think you're highlighting the robustness of this curriculum in a longitudinal manner, space learning that can build over time, and then the accessibility issue of uh, kind of the ability to reach a audience and learnership that, that really outstrip just local and even regional, but international, international. And the fact that also this type of stuff lives on, it's a very enduring you know, curriculum as well, uh, as opposed to something just uh, in person. So I guess, uh, Rob, I'll turn it to you. What, um, you know, do you view this as a successful curricular change? And, and what are you using to suggest that it's, it's been successful? Sure, so um, I think, it's fair to say that when we were trying to make these changes, the intention was always to limit the impact of the pandemic as much as possible and to try and maintain the, the current delivery of the POCUS program kind of as it stands. So I, I think that would be kind of the standard by which we were judging whether this was a successful change. And I think we did have some success there. So like, I think we've already uh, touched on the fact that we increased access. We don't have any, any data, unfortunately, um, with regards to the webinars and, and versus the didactic sessions beforehand in terms of attendance. Um, but you know, anecdotally from, from uh, Drew and I's uh, experience, um, we feel as though access is, is much improved. Similarly, we have kind of um, been driven to create content that has been highly accessed. So we know that the, the instructional videos um, that we had mentioned previously are available online. Um, we have some data from, from uh, the kind of the metrics of those showing that they've been accessed on greater than 1500 times in multiple different countries by uh, greater than 500 different unique viewers. So, um, so I think that's a success as well. Uh, and then moving kind of onto the, the in-person sessions that, that we were uh, talking about, because of the fact that we were able to expand the, the number of mentors available, we actually saw uh, an increase in the number of sessions that was available to trainees. So the, there was an increase in the, in the opportunity for hands-on in-person scanning, you know, post-pandemic, uh, which is kind of a little bit counterintuitive almost. I, I, I think that there was, you know, in addition to that, there's some, some other kind of interesting data points that we sh saw that, you know, didn't really it kind of suggests that there was either like a not a success or a failure. Uh, the, the number of participants involved in the program, uh, in terms of the uh, the hands-on aspect of the program, increased from 15 to 23. Um, the number of online kind of pre-recorded, uh, like uh, sorry, well, I suppose recorded, you know, um, after the webinars. So we had 18 webinars um, post-pandemic and as opposed to 10 webinars pre-pandemic. So it kind of is now available as an as a ongoing resource for, for fellows and residents to access. 
something that we kind of saw, which I, I guess maybe we can touch on a little bit in some of the challenges was despite the um, increased number of in-person scanning sessions, the, the, the number of sessions attended per trainee was actually roughly the same. So even though there's more opportunities available, something uh, something that maybe we don't fully understand limited the um, uh, access of those sessions by the trainees. And kind of in tandem with that, there was a drop off in uh, the number of scans submitted to the self-directed portfolio. So those were some of the things that maybe we, we, we don't fully understand why that happened, but may have kind of limited some of the success of the program. So a lot of, you know, kind of uh, creation of enduring materials, a lot of accessibility, and then kind of further to try and see, you know, what happens in terms of uh, your competency assessments and so forth over time, if they stay same or, or increase, uh, will be actually very, very interesting as well. Alberto, I'm going to turn it to you in terms of we're having this conversation about the difficulty uh, to implement these changes. You know, what were the major stumbling blocks that gave you the most trouble to, to overcome? Well, I think is uh, there are a couple of aspects that they, they were uh, challenges. Uh, uh, it was, again, as Rob mentioned, is that the time and space, right? It's in terms of timing is really is the fact that uh, um, the, the we were talking about the assessment uh, and the portfolio review. Uh, I, I gave a lot of thoughts about what happened, right? Because again, we dropped significantly. And I think is that a lot of aspect was constant reminder and the fact that um, the, the persons, the people, myself and a few others that were responsible of the uh, looking at the, por the portfolio, they, they didn't have a time. Is that it really is we had to choose uh, what to focus on and uh, we had to drop that part. And that was a major challenge on within a block is really is that what can we do to, we maintain the offering, but the assessment it was something that was a big block for, for us. Um, the, the boot camps, the in-person session, as much as uh, it was a success in terms of accessibility and as Rob and Drew mentioned is we were able to allow people that traditionally would not have access uh, the sessions uh, and the training uh, to participate. Uh, but at the same time is, uh, I truly believe that uh, there was um, a missed opportunity for the trainees uh, to, to be in person. We just actually, we have just restarted our 2021, 2022 curriculum. Uh, and last week uh, I had uh, uh, a hybrid uh, workshop, but we met in person, we had, um, smaller group uh, with some changes. Uh, and I can tell you is that I felt the difference in terms of uh, ability to provide uh, feedback, personalized feedback, uh, understand uh, uh, the trainers, the trainees, and um, sort of uh, provide a more, uh, uh, again, personalized uh, feedback that it's very difficult uh, through um, webinar to a chat to uh, uh, because as you as you well know right is that there are people that talking about the, the scanning sessions is that to a lot of people they benefited and there were uh, extreme uh, outliers in terms of people that they really benefited of this multiple session and they had a lot of uh, training opportunities other one that they sort of disappear and again is uh, it's part of the, the plan is to, to try to make 
the training uh, uh, more effective for not from their liars, the, the, the one that they're good, the one that are motivated, that we always find way of learning. The one that they are maybe overwhelmed, maybe they're not uh, um, so motivated or have other reasons not to be able to participate as much as uh, other tra trainees, uh, we still have educational responsibility. And, uh, and that's something that uh, it's my goal for the year, to be honest, that to make sure that uh, not just the true and rob of the situation, that there are going to be practicing and scanning no matter what, with me or without me, um, they will still benefit from that. I don't know if I really answered the question, but this, I think is really is that the, 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 the changes that we made, they were actually not so difficult to implement. And that's the part, right? Is that the, what it was difficult to implement, we didn't do it. <laughs> right, right. You're talking about, you know, the heterogeneity of, of, of learners. Some people are going to rise no matter, you know, what you're doing. They're, you know, highly motivated. They're going to seek out resources. Some also take to these, these virtual uh, and asynchronous stuff and making sure that you're capturing everybody uh, in, in that process is, and then also the competency assessments that you're kind of talking about and portfolio creations are some of the areas that you're talking about. And so I guess, you know, what changes do you see going forward, um, you know, to your, to your curriculum, the, whether it be because COVID still exists. So I'm wondering, you know, what things that you're planning to, to change going forward? Yeah. So as I mentioned is that uh, there are things that are going to stay. And I think is that a lot of the curriculum will stay online. But what we can do in person uh, with selective intervention, uh, we go back to be in person. And then I don't believe in a fully uh, on, online, at least for a skill like this one. I do believe that the hybrid model is uh, essential. And uh, um, again, the personalized feedback, the human uh, more personal interaction. There are trainees that they're not on my side because uh, Again, the, the way that our university and our program works is that there are trainees that they rotate to the five academic sites because they are in, involved in a certain program. And then we have uh, international trainees that they're already coming fully trained in their country and they come for uh, extra training. And usually these trainees, they don't rotate to, to different sites. They stay at very selected academic centers based on their uh, uh, identified needs and contracts as well. And so I realized that I didn't meet some of the trainees that they were participating in the program personally. And, and that to me is, uh, I strongly believe and I truly believe in the human relationship uh, as an educator and how the motivation comes from uh, role modeling and from uh, understanding people, uh, not just from their performance on a test online. And so one of the things that this year uh, um, we are trying to do, and I think is that we will, I have positive uh, uh, support from the group, is uh, we will try to create a, um, sort of a mentorship program where uh, um, instead of me responsible of uh, uh, checking all the supervised, the, the portfolio, instead of me being responsible of uh, checking if the trainees, they are all scanning and then participating in the session because it's not feasible. There's not much administrative support for this, is that uh, I ask for friends and colleagues across the city uh, to volunteer their time. 
And uh, so people that they are expert in point of ultrasound, not just from critical care, we have a lot of anesthesiologists that they offer their time. Um, they will be assigned two or three max, maybe even only two trainees involved in the program. And uh, ideally at the same site. So again, if you are an international fellow coming to spend the entire year with me at St. Mike's, it will be either with myself or with someone working at my site. And so there will be a sort of a more uh, mentoring. Hey, how are things? Have you done your scan this month? Is uh, the super the review the review of the scan will be done not by a centralized person, me, but uh, by these mentors. And so I hope that in this way we would be able to sort of bridge that gap that we didn't have last year, where uh, the trainees that they were struggling for any reason because they had no time. It's that a lot of it, our fellows, they have families, that they were school closed, a lot of issues that we are not aware, to be honest. And maybe that's why they could not really scan from 4 to 6 p.m., because our scanning sessions are uh, off time. Uh, but that having that uh, personal relationship, I'm really hoping that will help uh, um, to have everyone scanning enough and everyone uh, sort of finding solution because if you are aware of the, the problem, I can try to find solution. And I say that in other situations, I I don't know why they will not say enough. Yeah, great great points. I mean, you're really talking about continuing to or continuously looking at your program and looking at you know, where where weaknesses are, where opportunities are, and I think yeah, as you keep trying to understand it better, then you can make you know uh, adequate solutions you know, to, to the program as well. Yeah, um, to be honest, if I can say something is that uh, it's actually interesting because we, the changes uh, that we made, uh, we didn't really plan to measure that, right? We didn't have a plan to assess our program. And that was part of the uh, editorial process, right? Is that uh, that was something that the reviewers asked us and uh, give us some evidence. And that forced us uh, to look at our data and realize where we were very good and we were not. So it's something that uh, I actually we are very grateful to the ATS scholar is the fact that uh, made me reflect uh, on, uh, on this past year more than I would have done it otherwise. That was very, very interesting for me is that to say, you know what is that? Yeah, initial action was damn, a lot of questions for the reviewers. Uh, uh, but then it was, well, you know what, that is actually so good. Yeah. You know, it's so common with, uh, you know, educationalists, educators that we're constantly doing a lot of things, but trying to capture that part of, you know, what the net effect is, what the the, the consequences are, so forth, is, is very important. You know, one, for improving the actual curriculum that you're creating, but also for the ability in terms of publishing and, and getting it out there, uh, you know. Um, so that's also there. You know, one thing I want to turn it to was, you know, because we talked about this, it's kind of more about the administrative and financial side of this uh, of this change. And so I want to hear about how you how did you get buy-in from whether it be learners, teachers, administration, what were the financial costs associated with this change? Because I think that's something that's very relevant to other people who are who are in your shoes. Well, learners is not a problem. Learners are passionate about ultrasound. I think it's different. Something that we realize over the course of the year is that uh, there's always uh, uh, interest. Then there may be no commitment to, 
but definitely they're really interesting in point of ultrasound because I think we we all they all realize how this is a skill that uh, is extremely helpful in the day-to-day -day practice. It's something that can really change the management of the patient, can provide information that are useful at the bedside when they are alone. And that was my experience, right? That's how I started. My, I started point of ultrasound because I had the opportunity to spend six months in a rural hospital in remote Africa. I was in Burundi. And I needed the skill to take care of my patients because I have no cardiology, no radiology available for me. And I think is you can be in Burundi or you can be in Toronto at 3 a.m. in the morning, and it's not very different, to be honest. And that's why the trainee, the trainees, the, the, it's not a problem. They, they're, there's buying all the time. The buying uh, from the administration and from the organization, the other teachers is, I think, is uh, there's also buying. The problem is that there are competing interests and there are financial issues. Right? Is that the first in terms of the curriculum is already packed. And uh, adding something automatically may take out something else. And that's why in agreement with the program director, we made this almost extracurricular in the sense that uh, um, it's the, it's the webinar are done uh, uh, late in the afternoon. The scanning session are done usually after the day is finished and uh, they are not accepted the workshop or the boot camp part of the academic half days. Uh, because again, I truly believe that uh, if you're coming for a clinical care training program, you need to learn clinical care before learning ultrasound. Um, and, uh, but the, 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 the commitment is there from the programs because it's part of the Royal College uh, objective of training because it's a skill that we all realize is important. Uh, the problem is that we don't have enough teachers, as we discussed already. Is it's it's a gap, right? There was a there was a few years ago an article that I read an editorial talking about the coming boom, uh, and it was specifically mentioning about the fact that it's a coming boom that there's going to be a need that, that, that especially with new technologies, these handheld devices, trainees are going to have their own personal ultrasound. And teachers, uh, faculty members, will not be able to supervise them. And that is scary and dangerous, to be honest, in academic centers. Um, and that's one of the aspects that we are trying to do is a part of our curriculum. We also offer the curriculum to faculty members. Um, again, in terms of accessibility, as you mentioned, is that uh, um, you can do it uh, uh, remotely. You can do it in a synchronous way. The scanning sessions, uh, if there is that little bit of awkwardness in scanning with uh, a trainee, you can scan uh, just faculty with faculty and the sonographers, our sonographers, so there are uh, outside of the program. There's a lot of benefit also from that perspective, I think, uh, in creating uh, uh, a sort of critical mass of trainers. Um, but definitely we need more uh, teachers here in Toronto, and I'm pretty sure everywhere else. Uh, I, my dream is one day that this will be totally unnecessary because if it's part of the medical school training, it's part of uh, internal medicine training, you come to critical care, you just need to have a little bit of more knowledge and, uh, and skills. You have the skills exactly as you intubate uh, and you practice central line insertion is that in your day-to-day -day clinical rotation. Uh, we are not there yet, uh, hopefully soon. 
The financial part uh, is that we were lucky. The, the department, uh, the, the Division of Critical Care Medicine at the University of Toronto was extremely supportive. Is that they, they truly believe in the benefit of this and they found the money. In terms of how much it is, is that I'm made rough calculation is, I think is that with all our scanning session, again, five sites, so a lot of scanning sessions with $1,000 per month, you can run the program very easily, very easily. Uh, and then uh, in the past, uh, what we used to do, we used to reinvest our uh, endeavors, right? Is that so, there's a lot of need of point of characters are not just in academia for trainees, but also in, in the community. And so we used to organize uh, CME events for uh, clinicians in the community, courses uh, at conferences, um, teaching in our area, whatever was donated uh, to the program uh, for, for this. Uh, again, in, in, at the individual level, it's not much. I think is that thinking about $1,000 per month, you can easily uh, support a training program by organizing once a year or twice a year ultrasound course. Uh, and so again, it's 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 time that you commit and you donate. But again, we are lucky here that the uh, teachers are valued uh, by university, and uh, our time is uh, respected in terms of uh, this this opportunity. And I think is more than money. Uh, it's really is the, the academic institution uh, uh, recognizing the value of this. Great points. I'm I'm pretty sure that uh, you know our listeners can appreciate those that uh, thoughtfulness in terms of yes, you know the the kind of buy-in aspects of of things both financially, administratively, institutionally, and how to go about that and how to get them to see what we already believe is the merits of of ultrasound uh, in, in the care of our patients. All right, so I'm gonna wrap it up with a kind of more of a final question at this point for all three of you, which is really kind of what you've learned, you know, your parting shots of what you've learned, what you've gained from this endeavor, you know, whether it be, you know, benefits that you see in, in this new curriculum, things personally that you've gained from uh, being a part of this, but uh, I'll start out with uh, Drew, then Robert, and then uh, Alberto. Yeah, I think, uh... One of the big takeaways uh, for me in going through this program, and uh, as Alberto has already pointed out, it still remains to be seen from uh, an evaluation standpoint as to whether or not we can say uh, that these changes are effective. But you know, at least from my own experience, um, I can say that I, I think that this program in its current form um, does demonstrate that distributive learning for uh, for a hands-on skill is still possible. Um, and, you know, while I think a point-of-care ultrasound education is always going to have some in-person, I think that you know, our experience does say, does show that there's a fair amount that you can, uh, can put in the hands of, of the learner with just enough background instruction and some regular touch points, uh, from, from an expert. And, uh, that, you know, this, this longitudinal model, um, you know, can help people to develop deliberate practice. Um, and uh, you know, the other takeaway, especially as as someone who's who's looking as part of their their career in the future to have uh, a niche in uh, point of care ultrasound education, is that you know the the current the currency of this is it's always time. 
um, you know, time on the part of uh, the instructors to be able to provide uh, provide education, um, carving it into um, already jam packed uh, curriculums for all levels of training. And then even on the uh, and, and the part that sort of has impacted me, I think the most as the trainee is that um, that there's still going to be uh, at, at least with the current climate where uh, where point of care ultrasound is viewed as something that's very nice to have as part of a curriculum, but not necessarily always, you know, 100% um, uh, built in uh, to, uh, to the fabric of, of a training program uh, that uh, you, you have to think about and be mindful of uh, what you're asking trainees to do. Great, very thoughtful words. I agree wholeheartedly with everything you, you said. Uh, Rob? Yeah, so uh, one of the uh, one of one of my main interests is uh, technology enhanced learning. Uh, so it was very interesting for me seeing the curriculum shift from something that was in person to being like almost entirely online. But what I came to appreciate, you know, over the course of um, writing this uh, manuscript and and talking to Drew and Alberto about things is, you know, I get very excited about what we can do online and what we can do with technology, but. One thing that I hadn't really thought about is what we what we lose, um, as Alberto was kind of touching on uh, with regards to the human aspect. So it's really kind of switched the way that I think about things, uh, and something that I'd be you know really interested in exploring further in the future is you know how can we optimize the electronic and the online aspect of this as much as possible, really so that we can just focus our efforts in the, uh, the you know the more time consuming and the more like resource constrained in person. Uh, scanning sessions. So it's been a really helpful experience for me. Great. Thank you for that. And Alberto? I have very little to add to Rob and Drew's uh, very insightful comments, to be honest. I'm actually quite impressed and pleased by seeing how they they, they reached the conclusion they took me more than 10 years to, to get in a very short amount of time. That give me hope for the future. Um, I think is that as Sort of as they mentioned is that really is the how to make this uh, hybrid uh, combine virtual versus in-person experience uh, the best possible in terms of the uh, outcome for the trainees and also for the teacher in terms of uh, time consume and uh, to do this. I think is, is really is that that's one of the things that I want to focus in the next few years is that, okay, now we've, we've built the basis. We have some good understanding of uh, the content and how to deliver it. And now I really want to make the experience uh, for the trainee um, successful. Successful in terms of having fun for it. Successful in terms of, as Drew mentioned, is that not feeling overwhelmed by the fact that, oh my gosh, I have to add this to whatever is happening in my life. Uh, at work and also in uh, my social uh, sort of uh, fa family, friends, and free time, whatever. And um, and then assess this because again, I think the competence assessment is is critical, right? We want to make sure that uh, people that they are doing this, they're enjoying it, but also they are learning out of it and they're bringing home competency. And so these are really the, the the domain that I want to shift in the next few years. Now that sounds great. Uh, very much uh, kind of creating balance or optimization of asynchrony and synchrony in, in your curriculum so that uh, it leads to the best outcomes uh, for the learners, for the teachers, for the patients. Fantastic. 
So I think that's probably a good place to, to end our discussion. Again, I want to thank the three of you for spending some time illuminating us on adapting your point of care ultrasound curriculum from pre-COVID times into the age of COVID and sharing your insights on a successful implementation of a blended learning design course. Thank you, all three of you. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that does it for us and this latest scholarly podcast. And for those podcast listeners, Drs. Jackson, Brotherson and Goffey's article on teaching ultrasound at the point of care in times of social distancing is available on the ATS Scholar website at atsjournals.org. Otherwise, stay tuned for more scholarly podcasts coming soon. And don't forget to subscribe to Scholarly on iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast player you prefer. Bye for now.